You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. It's good to see you all this morning in great time of worship. I'm so glad that our worship time is a consistent reminder of the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Great is his love toward us and how empty and hopeless we'd be without him. And so we praise him this morning, amen? And can't give him enough glory. It's so good to be together. Thank God for our time of worship. And we certainly have missed Pastor Capace and Sister Carol Ann and their family uh, as they've been traveling and the staff that's with them. We look forward, greatly anticipate their return uh, by the latter part of this week. But right now we're going to continue on in our messages as we've been in, starting off a few weeks back and really focusing on this question that still kind of is tied down to this whole new year that we're looking at as a vision for the church that we're all a part of. And it all comes back down to what the banner says of who's your one. And so before we get into this time together, let's go before the Father in heaven and let's just, let's just worship him in prayer and that he would help our hearts understand what he has to say to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful so much. That you've loved us, Lord God, before we were even understanding what love was. We thank you, Lord, as we read the power of the gospel and know it personally as we've been saved. Jesus, we thank you that you killed death itself. You put it to silence. And now we no longer have to ever be concerned of eternal salvation that's found in you. It It is there. It is secure and solid. And we praise you. That we have the opportunity to declare that to a lost world. That we can share in our relationships and our interactions this glorious gospel we've been saved by. And I pray, Lord, now that you would greatly help us, Father, in the understanding of what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus. And help us, Lord, to grasp the truths that are in front of us. And we want you to get the glory and bring the increase in our life that it would all count for you, Jesus. Help us, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll share with you at this time, before we get into the Word, I want to start off, just make sure if anyone needs a worship guide, feel free to lift your hand. If you'd like one of those, if you don't have one, lift your hand, and our ushers will be happy to pass those out to you, okay? Just keep your hands up, and they'll bring them momentarily. We'll say to you that many, many years ago, I was pastoring a congregation in southern Arkansas, and one specific day, our staff had notified and said, hey, we have someone that needs to meet with you. We set up an appointment, and this man came and had a, a time of counsel. His name was Larry. And Larry had come into my office and basically just said, hey, listen, I, I need to talk about some things about the Bible. I said, all right, Larry, go ahead and let's, let's go ahead and dive into what's on your heart. And Larry began to share, and he had a lot of questions on Bible prophecy and things of that nature and questions about other areas of the Bible. We began to talk through those things and as I began to listen to what Larry was trying to communicate, within a few minutes it became evident and clear that Larry was very shallow in his understanding and it was almost like he had just grabbed a hold of a few truths here and a few truths there and and he tried to put them all together in this collage of trying to understand what he came into office to talk about. 
And as we began to talk through those things, I, I finally had to ask Larry the question and say, I just want to ask you this, Larry, to see, because I don't really think you're really grasping what it is that you're trying to communicate. So let me just ask you this. Have you been discipled? Has anyone discipled you? And I'll never forget the look in Larry's eyes. In fact, it was so profound, I had not experienced anything to that point in this area of discipleship. It was so profound that it was a defining moment for both Larry and myself. And what happened is that to satisfy my question, Larry didn't know what to say. And he began to frantically search to justify all of the church attending and the Bible study and the praying. And and he began to try to combine all these things, somehow thinking it might just satisfy the question and think those things are what it means to be discipled. When I began to realize Larry had no idea, and he had not been, I gave him the source of my question. I said, Larry, let me explain to you why I asked that question. It's because the Christ that has saved us has given us a commission. And the commission comes out of Matthew 28 in the gospel. And it's what Jesus said as his last words, as he spoke to his disciples right before he ascended into heaven. And he gave them this command. He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. When I expressed to Larry that in verse 20 of that text, Jesus said to the disciples, the way you guys are going to make more disciples when I go to heaven and I leave you here and you continue my mission, is you're not just going to go make Christians, you're going to make disciples. And you're going to make sure that they are taught to obey all the commands that I gave to you. That was the raw cut of expectation that Jesus had intended for biblical, theologically balanced discipleship. When I looked at Larry and said, so when I say, Larry, have you been discipled? Have you been taught the commands of Jesus Christ that he gave us in the Great Commission? I'm not talking about a bunch of Bible studies. Have you sat down and listened and learned and obeyed what Jesus gave to his disciples? And Larry immediately began to weep. He was, he was literally weeping. This grown man. And I knew, I knew immediately that the penetrating power and awe of Holy Scripture arrested this man's heart. And something was happening in him to where he realized, I'm empty. I've got a good church attendance thing going and I'm, and I'm pretty knowledgeable of certain things about the Bible. But I don't have anyone who is a disciple. To which I asked him the question, Larry, so what you're telling me, nobody has discipled you. And he just shook his head. And then he said this, but I want to be. I don't just want to keep going through the motions. I want someone to teach me. But I don't know what to do. I don't know who to ask. I want someone who's been walking with Christ longer than I have to show me what I do. 
to follow Jesus. And I looked at Larry and I said, buddy, you just found somebody to disciple you. I will make sure. Not on my watch. Am I going to let you go by the wayside and try to figure this thing out? I will make time. We will meet. You will be discipled, friend. And we embraced that day. And I began to disciple him. And praise God, to God's glory, Larry began to make more disciples. It's amazing. A defining moment for both that man and me. But when he left the office that day, I remember sitting at my desk. And I was just kind of bewildered at what just happened. And I remember thinking to myself, for the rest of the congregation... How many other Larrys are sitting in the pews and the chairs who've been saved and baptized, but they've never been discipled? They've never had someone come alongside them and walk with them in the new journey of Christ to disciple them as Jesus commanded, not suggested. So what happens for many is this realization begins to make us wake up and go, wow, if this is what the Bible says, and if this is exactly what Jesus commanded, the question I need to ask is, where do I fit in that equation? Where do I stand in relation to this great commission? Have I been discipled? Am I even making disciples? This begins to be a question we ask for who's our one. Last week, we dove into Matthew 9 and we learned what it takes To be a fisher of men. We looked at three different practices of what it would take to actually catch a fish or catch a person with the gospel. We talked about we needed conviction for the mission. We said we need compassion for the miserable. And we said that we need actually a commitment to the harvest that is out there. And when we went into that together, we realized evangelistically we are to be fishing for men. We are to be taking the gospel that we've been saved by, that we know. And we are to joyfully and boldly proclaim that in our relationships to others, that we meet people. We make sure they know about Christ and who he is and what he has done. But what do you do when actually you catch one? Sometimes when you go fishing, you don't come back with near the catch of fish you hope for. Sometimes you don't come back with any. Sometimes when you share in the gospel, nobody wants to hear it. In fact, some people mock it and slander it. There are times when folks are ready. Times when the harvest is plentiful and ready. Times when the Spirit of God has worked in someone in such a way that it was almost effortless in which you shared Christ. And it's like they just burst and said, yes, I want Jesus to save me. I've heard this gospel. That's the day of increase. That's the day you got to be a part of when a fish is caught. And you go back from the lake or the pond, wherever you've been, and you've got an ice chest full of fish. Before they're going to be served on a a supper table and given to a family, there's that in-between. When you catch the fish, you got to clean them. And then you can eat them. But the whole purpose of that is to remember, when a fish is caught, it's got to be cleaned. In the same way it works in evangelism and discipleship. Once somebody has been saved by Jesus Christ, they've been caught. But then they got to be cleaned. Not of their sin, because Christ forgave them of their sin. They got a regenerated heart when they got saved. But they did not get a renewed mind. And that's where we are. Many times when someone becomes a Christian, 
They bring. Christ has forgiven them of their sin. They're set free, born again, new creation, end of conversation. But that man or that woman, boy or girl, still brings with them the background. Still brings with them the hurt and the pain, the mistakes, the consequences. They spent their life living in the world, living lost without Jesus. And they learned a lot of stuff. They bring a lot of junk in their mind and their behavior and their attitude. And so they are justified when they're saved. When they die, they are glorified with Christ. But the in-between that moment of being justified and glorified is this being sanctified. It's that realization that the, the line, the dash on the tombstone for a Christian is what that represents. It means that I have been saved by Jesus, but now I need to be taught how to follow him. Romans 12 and 2 says to us, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So a new Christian has got a heart that's been saved. Their life's been changed. Yes. But they now need to now unplug and debunk and get away from the way they've been taught before they became a Christian. They need to learn a new mindset. They need to learn a new understanding. They need to have, they need to have the mind of God at work in them. And that happens through transformation. That's where a disciple comes in to help that brother or sister who's new in Christ transform from the inside out as they are now following Jesus. That's what it looks like. The fish has been caught. And now through discipleship, the fish is being cleaned progressively. And sanctification. And when we get to this point, we realize that's how disciples are made. Evangelized sinners are caught, now they're cleaned up in heart and mind. So what we look at is that we move and we transition from making fishers of men to actually making disciples of Christ. And that picture is what it looks like. In fact, I want to propose just some questions to think about. And in this proposal, I want us to really ask these questions and let's answer them in our own heart. And here's what they would look like. Number one, how long have you been a born-again Christian? It's a question that only you and I should answer. How long have you been a born-again Christian? If you and I have an answer to that, we go back to when we remember Christ saving us. Hallelujah, there's an answer to the question. But if you and I do not yet know Christ, and we've not yet been born again, then I would say to you today in this service, know this, Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King. He died on the cross for your sin and for mine. He was buried, but death can't hold him. So three days later, he burst out of the grave. He came alive, praise God. And therefore, we can have forgiveness of sin because Christ died and rose again. He loves you. Repent and believe the gospel. Amen? So if anyone's lost today, let the gospel go out and answer the question, how long have you been a born-again Christian? Which would lead to the other question. And that question would be this. Essentially, who discipled you? If you've been a born-again, if you're a born-again Christian, then certainly somebody has discipled you. And if you and I are sitting here in this moment and thinking to ourselves, no one has discipled me. I was saved. I was baptized. I've been in church. 
But I do not have a time of which a brother or sister took me under their wing and literally discipled me as the Bible teaches. And in that moment, you and I might feel a little empty and think, what's going on with that? But if we can remember back and say, yeah, there was a gentleman in our church 10 years ago. This person knew I was a baby Christian. He took me under his wing and he showed me and we met for six months and he showed me how to follow Christ and listen to his commands. Hallelujah. If that's the case, praise God. How long have we been saved? Who discipled us after we got saved? And that leads to a third question. And that question is this. How many people have you discipled so far in your Christian life? See, every Christian should have someone who discipled them. And then when they were finished being discipled, they left the nest. And then they themselves went out and made disciples. So in other words, what I'm sharing in these questions is completely in line with the expectancy of Christian theology and understanding in the Bible. This is the way the early church would explode from Jerusalem. This is how Christians would show up in Antioch. This is how the gospel would leave out of Galilee. This is how the believers took the gospel to the world and the nations. Because people were making disciples and getting the gospel out to the end of the world. Somebody had to be that one to keep making disciples and it spread. So when we look at these questions, it causes us to realize what we need to have an answer to that. We need to be able to say, I have been discipled. I am now making disciples. But it should never, ever, it should never be satisfactory for a Christian to say, I've been saved for 15 years. And in my 15 years, I have not been discipled. Or in my 15 years, I got discipled, but I did not continue to pass the baton forward and make more disciples. That Christian would be a man or woman, boy or girl, that would basically have to look at Christ and be able to say, you know, Lord Jesus, I know you gave this great commission. I know that I am to be making disciples, but Lord, I myself need to be discipled. Or, Lord, I have gotten casual and comfortable in my Christianity. I'm comfortable in my church attendance and my stuff going on in my life as a Christian. I'm thankful for my friends and the influences. And all this is good, and I love the bubble I live in. But, Lord, I don't have anyone that I've actually discipled. In that case, you and I would want to say, man, how long has it been? We need to be making disciples. You know, when we're physically born... I think it goes without saying that at some point in the life of that human being, physical birth eventually necessitates reproduction. At some point, you can look at a 10-year-old boy, and you wouldn't say to the 10-year-old boy, hey, how many children do you have? Obviously, the kid's not thinking about having kids. He's thinking about being a kid, amen? But you fast forward 20 years, and that young man may be 30 years old, And you might look at him and say, do you have a family? How many children do you have? Tell me about your family. Why why would we do that? It's because physical birth, at some point in our minds, we think that there will be a reproduction. You were born physically, 
and one day you will have your own family and you will reproduce. It doesn't even, it doesn't even check with us to think that you won't reproduce. So here we all are because of reproduction. So when someone's born again, spiritual birth, we may not look at a baby Christian and say, how many disciples do you have? We might back off of that and say, wait a minute, you're still new to the faith. You're still walking with Christ. Oh, that's right. Someone's discipling you. Great. I'm glad to hear that. Keep it up. But fast forward some years in their life. And at some point we should say, how many children do you have? How many disciples do you have? How many have you? And it would be unthinkable to say that there's been no reproduction. What I want you to understand today is that is the message of discipleship. Christianity is all about testifying the gospel of what Christ has done. But discipleship is about reproduction. Making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. You see, the the distinct difference between a student and a disciple is that a student learns what his teacher knows, but a disciple becomes what his master actually is. In Luke 6, 40, Jesus said these words. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who's perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And when Christ is sharing that with us, When we receive him as Lord and Savior, we become a Christian. But when we begin to follow him as our Lord, we become a disciple. It's very interesting that in the New Testament, the word Christian is found three times. But when you look up and discover how many times the word disciple is there, 269 times. I think it goes without saying, Christ is all about saving and he's great at it. But he does not expect for a Christian to sit on a mountainside while he goes into heaven and just look up and gaze and say, well, one day I'll be there. But instead he expects the disciple as Jesus ascended and say, hey guys, wake up. I need you to go make disciples. What I've made out of you, I need you to go make out of everybody else. Win them to Christ. And when they get saved and baptized, disciple them, teach them, show them my word. I've commanded you for three years of ministry. Now I want you to pass on my commands so that they will be discipled as I disciple you. In other words, that's the, that's the big picture. Jesus would never expect a Christian to just sit idle or to be comfortable in their Christianity. He expects the Christian to be accountable to making more disciples. The Christian doesn't get a pass. The Christian doesn't get to make any excuses. The Christian is commanded But because of the blood of Christ and the salvation we've been given, y'all, we're blessed to be a part of this, aren't we? It's our way of saying, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Yes, I want to see more people saved. Yes, I want to make disciples. Lord, I'm ready. Use me. You see, when we get into this, we think about this. For every Christian to be a disciple of Jesus, we must intentionally intentionally make disciples because if we don't we will neglectfully just make excuses not to and I assure you when we think about that in that aspect we don't want to stand before Christ one day in heaven and and be able to look at the Lord 
at the bema seat of Christ, the judge seat of Christ, and, and, and then they realize that we were happy with our Christianity and we loved it and we lived in it and we were faithful to our church. But one day we want to be able to stand before Christ and say, Lord, you gave me a great commission. I am your follower. I am yours. And here are my disciples, Lord Jesus. Take these for your glory. We would never want to stand before Christ and say, Lord, I don't have any disciples to give you. Now, Lord, I was faithful to this and that and did that. But Lord, I don't have any. That would be, a, that would be embarrassing because we've been given a great commission. So the Christian, the Christian is called to this. You and I, if we profess faith in Christ, saved and baptized, we know the Lord in that way. The gospel has had a powerful effect on us. We share the gospel, but we want to be very sensitive to this specific direction. Lord, who is my one? I'm either going to be sharing the gospel with the one that I need to witness to, and or I'm going to be making disciples. Because there's somebody in our church, there's someone in my association of friends, there's someone I work with that is a new Christian, but they have never been discipled. I need to reach out to them because this is my mandate from Christ. And I can't pretend like it's not there. I can't turn a blind eye. It's here. And I need to take it to heart. So when we get into that aspect of it too, disciple making is really the evidence of Christianity. But discipleship is the aroma. It's the fragrance. It's what makes Christianity look and smell so good because making disciples is proof that Christ has risen from the dead and other people are being saved and transformed into the likeness of Jesus. That's our heartbeat. The purpose behind all of our church attendance and all of our Bible study, the purpose behind all of our praying and our fellowship and our activities with the church and in life with Christ, the purpose of all these things is not to make any of us feel good about our spirituality, but instead it's to use all of the growth, all of the maturity, all the Bible study, all of these things, and to use it as leverage to say, God, you've poured into me. Now I want to find a baby Christian and I want to pour into them. Because God, I don't want to just channel everything I'm learning and bottle it up and keep everything I know about you inside. I want to use the growth and the maturity you've given me. And I want to make sure I'm releasing it. Not hoarding it. Because other people need that to be discipled. You know, if there was ever a person that we could ever model disciple making after. Then it would likely be the Apostle Paul. In the New Testament, he had a young man by the name of Timothy. And what I want you to think about for just a moment is that in our Bible, of these 27 books in the New Testament, two of them are penned to a, as a letter to a young man named Timothy. We have 1 Timothy and we have 2 Timothy. The year that this is being written in 2 Timothy is about A.D. 66. And the time of which Paul is writing to Timothy from a prison in Rome is indicating that this is his second time that he's incarcerated because of his faith in Jesus, he was put in jail. At the time that, that this letter is being written, there's a, a man by the name of Nero. He is the Roman emperor of Rome. 
and he's wicked, grossly vile. In fact, so wicked is the man's heart and behavior that he gets joy and privilege out of killing Christians. He counts it as sport. If you know anything about the Roman Colosseum in history, you'll know that that Colosseum during the time of Nero as an emperor was used greatly for many, many believers that were killed and tortured by lions and spear and javelin in there while the crowd was clapping and the people were dying, including children and women, men. It was, it was horrendous. I have right here in my pocket an actual, looks, looks like a rock that I probably would have gotten from outside. But I'll tell you, it's not just any rock. This rock that I hold here in my hand is an actual piece of the wall from inside the Roman Colosseum. And if this rock could talk, if walls could talk, I have a feeling we'd hear a lot about what could be said. When Peter, or when Paul is writing this letter, he's in prison. He knows what's about to happen. And when we hear from Paul here, in his first Roman imprisonment, he would write to Timothy. Timothy would get letter number one. And in that first letter, Paul was going to be released. You know what happened? He wrote to Timothy about church instruction. Hey, Timothy, here's how you set up a church. Here are very important things you need in the church. And here are doctrines that need to be taught in the church. Fast forward. Paul's in prison again. Letter number two comes, 2 Timothy. He's not writing about church instruction. Paul's writing about discipleship instruction. You know why? Because Paul's about to die. If we were to ask Paul in AD 66, hey, Paul, who's your one? Paul would likely tell us, I'll tell you who it is. It's Timothy. I'm pouring into him. He's who is in my life right now. And Paul knew he was not going to get free from prison this time. And he did lose his head. Beheaded by Nero. Before he dies, the Apostle Paul penned 2 Timothy. And even though we use this scripture in our church understanding of what he says, Timothy is getting this letter from the Apostle Paul as the guy who's being discipled by Paul. And so we can't help but read this here as the last words of the Apostle Paul and know that the context behind it is a guy pouring himself into the one he's discipling. It begs the question, what does he say? What does he have to share in here? What I want to share with you as we compile 2 Timothy and we just visit uh, some verses in between the four chapters, we just briefly touch on them, we will find that there is a tapestry of connection. And what we find is that the Apostle Paul leaves us kind of a model motivation of what discipleship looks like when you disciple someone and some motivations to stir up that one you're discipling to continue in the journey of Christ. I want to share with you what those five motivations look like. Beginning with number one, the one thing that we want to motivate and be careful to stir up when we are discipling someone else. So I'm saying this by faith, envisioning you and I finding our one in this year and discipling them, pulling them alongside and saying, I'm going to pour into you. 
use this passage as the grounding that we base our discipleship on as we are responsible to disciple others. The first thing that we want to pay attention to as a motivation is their fire. And what I mean by that, we want to, when we're discipling, we want to fan the flame of God to the one that we're discipling. And here's what I mean. Because what Paul tells Timothy in chapter 1, he says in verse 6, Therefore I remind you to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fearfulness, but out of one of power, love, and sound judgment. What that tells you and I is that when Paul is discipling Timothy, the second letter indicates he's not going to see him. Paul's going to probably be beheaded before Timothy can actually make his arrival by the end of chapter 4. So this tells us something. In chapter 1, Paul, knowing he's not going to be around much longer, says, i got to tell you this. He's showing us that when you disciple someone, we want to be motivated by their fire. He says, Timothy, keep ablaze the fire of God that is in you. And and he's saying, I want to fan the flame. I want to be a part of that. The Greek text uses this very phrase here about keep ablaze. It's an interesting word. In that culture, they understood this word to refer to coals, hot coals, that had no fire blazing. But when the coals were stirred up, suddenly a fire would ignite. And the idea that Paul is saying to Timothy is that, buddy, I'm in your life, and I'm glad to disciple you. And as I'm discipling you, I recognize that, man, God did something good in you. Jesus saved you. He changed your life. And there's a fire, there's a zeal, there's an enthusiasm, there's a joy that's deep inside of your heart, bud. And I get it. And I want to make sure that that doesn't die out. I want to make sure that you don't become overwhelmed. I want to come along you to help keep fanning the flame. When somebody's discipling someone else, be motivated by the fire that's in their heart. And sometimes that fire might get on you. Amen? And you might find yourself encouraged and find yourself blazing and excited. Maybe if you had slowly walked away from that. A second area of motivation that's given to us in the text begins right here at verse 8. Listen to what he says. He says, so don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. This tells you and I that the other area that we focus on that we're motivated to make disciples is not just their fire, but we also are motivated by their fears. And what I mean by that is simply that we want to help the one overcome sufferings just like Jesus did. Newer disciples can struggle to interpret why trials are happening to them while they're trying to serve God. And so when someone's a baby in Christ, they don't understand suffering. They don't get it. And so when a disciple is making a disciple, the person we're pouring our life into, we got to remember that as they get started and we're discipling them, I wouldn't be surprised a bit if in two days after you begin discipling this person, the bottom falls out. And suddenly they find themselves under attack. 
And they're thinking to themselves, I am going in the right direction. I am doing something good that God is calling me to do. I'm being discipled. Why is all of a sudden all this stuff happening? Yeah, Satan is always plotting. And he's always trying to bring down someone who is effective in being used of him for, for God's kingdom. So when someone's being discipled, we want to make sure to not just stir their fire, but to calm their fears. To let them know, hey man, the suffering that Christ did for us, you're called to that just like I am. So don't pay attention to these trials. Don't let them mess you up. Know that Jesus suffered for you, and these are ways that you suffer for him, but God will give you power. Rely on that. And don't be overcome by it. It leads to a third motivation. When we are making disciples, we also want to be motivated to be their filter. And what I mean by that, we look right here in the Bible, we want to help this one avoid traps of weaknesses because they happen. In fact, when Paul's writing this, look what he says to Timothy in your Bible, or we can read it together on screen. He says in chapter 2, in verse 16, he says these words, But avoid irreverent, empty speech, for this will produce an even greater measure of godlessness. In other words, Timothy, when you're walking with Christ, as your guy who's discipling you, I, Paul, Please watch out for speech that's going to bring you down. It produces godlessness. Guard yourself, Timothy. And he says to him as well in verse 22, he says, Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Timothy, watch out for the traps. I'm discipling you. But Satan's going to have some things against you. Watch out for temptations, man. Watch out for the way Satan's going to try to set some things up. He's going to try to bring you down. You're making good progress, man. I'm proud of you. But be ready for this stuff because when it happens, it's going to be there. It's going to be real. It's going to be hard to overcome. Flee youthful passions because they're waiting on you. And pursue these other things in Christ. Wow. And he says to Timothy as well, and speaking on that in chapter 3, he says this in verse 1. But, but know this. He says, Timothy... Difficult times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. He says, avoid these people. This is his way of letting him know. Timothy, when you are being discipled, be ready. I am your accountability partner. I'm discipling you. But you've got to be real at realizing new, these things are Satan is going to set these things up. Because he knows people got to learn to crawl before they can learn to walk. And Timothy, you're crawling. You're making progress. You're going to eventually be on your feet. But right now, as you're being discipled, be ready for this. What you and I do with someone is we represent them and we say, I am your filter of accountability. I'm here to tell you what you don't want to hear so you can become who God wants you to be. I want to help you overcome. And I want to make sure that I help you in these areas. But you've got to let me be your filter to help you get through these times of trial. 
when a guy or a girl is walking with Christ as a new disciple, they will have these attacks, and we are there as a disciple to help them along the way. Leads me, fourth of all, to the other area in the text. Another motivation that I need to have, and you'll need to have as you disciple someone, is be motivated by their focus. And by the focus I'm referring to, we want to help the one that we are discipling to stay encouraged and energized with stamina. And what I mean by that is notice what Paul says in the Bible. Notice what he tells Timothy, and don't miss it. He says right here in verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who lives in us that good thing entrusted to you. Hold on, Timothy. Don't let this go. Guard this. Protect this. He goes on to say in chapter 2, in verse 8, he says, keep your attention on Jesus Christ as risen from the dead and descended from David. This is according to my gospel. Timothy, keep focused that Christ conquered death. He's not like anybody else in a religious figure in human history. He is the Son of God. He rose from the dead. Nobody else can say that. Let the, the resurrection of Jesus motivate you as you need the stamina on the tough days to keep going, keep trucking, and not lose hope of what God has done in you, man. Don't lose sight of that. And he says something else to him in chapter 3. Look what he says at verse 13, 14. He says, specifically, lost my page here, y'all. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you. He's telling Timothy, don't lose, don't stop, guard, protect, hold on to, and continue in. It's his way of saying, Timothy, people have taught you these things. You've learned it. You're standing on the shoulders of everybody else behind you. You are the man or the woman that you are right now because God has deposited in your life very important people that have shared the gospel that you've grown, matured, and you are where you are because God has been faithful with those people in your life in the past. Timothy, remember these things. And what we do as a, with a new disciple is we, we help them get in shape because an older disciple... A more mature individual in Christ has one thing the new disciple doesn't have. They have longevity. They've got a track record of faithfulness. Because that man or woman has walked with Christ for a number of years. They have been discipled. And they have matured in Christ. That man or woman is valuable in the church. And they've got so much to offer to somebody who's brand new who needs somebody to take them under the wing and walk with them. Oh, how we need this. Oh, how this is transforming. When a church gathers together around the premise of either I need to be discipled or I need to be making disciples of those who need it. One or the other. And everybody falls in one of two camps, including myself. What we need in that is to see where Paul is saying, man, make sure you and I help that new disciple stay focused on what they're called to 
so they do not lose stamina in the direction that they need to keep going. Fifth and final, there's one more motivation mentioned here in our text. And here's what he says. He says right here in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, and I want you to see what he says before I tell you what it is. He says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, what I've, did, what I've shared with you, what I've poured into you, I've discipled you. Now, Timothy, make sure you take that and commit it to more men. Don't sit here and let it stop with you, man. Take it and make more disciples. It was unthinkable for Paul to think that Timothy thought that he could just get discipled and then cool off. Timothy, keep it going. Don't let the ball drop with you, man. Don't be the weak link in the chain. Keep it going. And then he goes on to say in verse 15 of chapter 2 these words. Be diligent to present yourself. Approve to God a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. Correctly teaching the word of truth. Or as another translation would say, rightly dividing the word of truth. Timothy, be diligent to say, here I am, Lord. I'm not going to waste away my life. I'm not going to take for granted your blood, Jesus. I'm not just going to attend church and go home. Lord Jesus, I'm here to say, I owe you my life. You saved me from hell. You gave me eternal life. And I cannot even do anything for it. Lord Jesus, you commanded a commission. I'm here, Lord, and I'm signing up to say I will make disciples for you, Lord. And I will do whatever it takes with no excuse, Father. Because I want to be faithful to you. What we say and understand here, what Paul's telling Timothy, continues to echo on into chapter 4. Look what he says in verse 1 and 2. He says, I solemnly, this is his last chapter, his last words. Timothy, I solemnly charge you. Before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead. And because of his appearing in his kingdom, he says, proclaim the message. Persist in it. Whether convenient or not, rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. And in verse 5, he says, but as for you, be serious about everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. When Timothy hears these words, a newer disciple can press on with God's word because as Paul is communicating to Timothy, commit what I've shared with you and pass it on to other men. Persist in this, Timothy. Some people don't want to hear it. Share it with those who do. Make disciples of those who want to follow Christ. Whether it's convenient or not. Whether you're too busy or not. Timothy, make it work because life and busyness will never, ever be a, a substitute for making, not making disciples. It'll never be one of those things, when I have more time, I'll be able to take someone under my wing. When I have more time, y'all, we will say that till the day we pass away. Time is a gift from God. And it's not looking to have more time as much as it would be this is some kingdom business. This is eternal. I don't need to ask for more time. 
I just need to reprioritize the time that I already have. And if this is important to me, I know it's only because it's first important to Christ. And what we would say to that is the realization, you and I, taking the collection of these four chapters and visiting these certain verses that give us an inside scoop into the heartbeat of Paul, who is a disciple maker of a young guy named Timothy, and he's sharing with us, decoding for us, a little insight into what a disciple maker needs to tell someone that he or she is discipling. And what they pay attention to as he modeled for us, stir their fire, calm the fears that they have in life from suffering. Be sure to filter their accountability because they are going to fall into traps of weaknesses. Be ready to be their accountability in that. To let them not get tripped up and overcome by those problems. Stay in their life to energize and encourage them with the stamina. To stay focused on the prize that is in Christ Jesus. To not lose sight of that among all the other stuff that goes on after they're being discipled. Stay focused on that. And remember to strengthen their faithfulness. To recognize, hey, be faithful. Timothy, be faithful. Not just for these other motivations, but be faithful that all of those things I'm discipling you has a purpose. It has a point. The point of it is so that you will take what I've poured into you and reproduce more disciples. That's it. That's what it's all for. So today, you know where we are? Where we are in this. It's a reminder to say, you know, where am I in this? Let me tell you, in first century Galilee, if we were to get inside the mind of a Jewish person, here is what we would discover. In first century Galilee, they had a process. And every Jewish person that was under the law of Moses would go to school to begin their education at six years old. And they would learn the first five books of the Bible, what they call, and what we call, the Torah. Now, it's interesting what this Torah would break down as and how this would lead to discipleship. As our worship team comes, I want you to think about what this looks like and what this means in our area right now. And what it means is this. It all comes back down to the fact that the Jewish boys and the Jewish girls would begin this education. And as they got to 10 years old, they would then complete it. And that first level of education was what the Jews called Bet's Affair. And whenever they finished their education at 10 years old, then they would begin to go to the next level. The best of the best would advance from 10 years old to a later age and they would go through that level of education called Bet Talmud. But the best of the best of the best would advance a little further from that. And if they got through all the teaching and training through the last level of education to a Jewish mind, they would go through what's called Bet Midrash. And only then would the best of the best of the best of the best graduate then they would be 
qualified to be applicants of a Jewish rabbi. If you made it through the interview process and you were qualified to be, to come under the rabbi, you would, you would come under what was called the rabbi's yoke. And when you took the yoke upon you from the rabbi, it was so that you could learn what the rabbi knows, to do what the rabbi does, so you could become just like the rabbi. So great was this devotion in Jewish culture under the law that these people who would become the rabbi's disciples would leave their friends, their family, their synagogue, their villages to follow the rabbi. And so intense was it that when you became the rabbi's disciple, you went everywhere he went. You did everything he did. And this meant on hot, dirty, dusty days and dirty roads, whatever the rabbi had stepped in, it was caked all over you because you were following so closely to your rabbi. In fact, the saying became known among the Jewish mind, the Jewish sages. They developed this saying because of the intensity of discipleship. They would say to the guy that would take off to be the disciple of the rabbi, bid him farewell because he left everything to follow the rabbi. The last thing they would say is may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It was a way that they understood this wasn't a tryout. This isn't, let me just see if this works out and I'll turn back around if it doesn't. This was life. This was how it was going to be. What I want to propose to you in that aspect is to say the same thing. Our rabbi is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And he is the one we follow. He's the one we call Lord. He's the one who bids us and welcomes us. And the only thing that we would want to say be said of us as we are covered in the dust of our rabbi. We don't want to be so far like Peter was at one time denying Jesus. And he saw Jesus at a distance. And he suffered for that because there was distance between him and Jesus. Let's bridge that gap. Let's just go ahead and basically ask ourselves the question. Am I someone who needs to be discipled. I've been in church. I got saved. I got baptized. I can honestly say I have been saved and baptized and I'm a part of church. But I cannot say that I've had one person pull me aside, call time out, take me under their wing and say, let me help you follow Jesus Christ. Don't be discipled just by going to church. Let me disciple you one-on-one so you know what it means to follow Jesus today. If there's one of us that say, that's not me, I've never been discipled, then I would encourage any one of us to just call on the Lord today in prayer and let let God begin the Holy Spirit-filled power, motion, and momentum to begin to generate who it is that will be discipled. Pray today for that. Pray in this altar if need be.
call upon the Lord and say, I need to be discipled because I haven't. But if you are the one that has been discipled, that you have to say, man, I don't have any disciples that I've made. I've not sought out a baby Christian. I've not gone after someone to disciple them. But I need to take this great commission seriously. I would say to you in the same manner, pour out to God in prayer and ask for God to begin to put the two of you together, whoever it will be that you disciple. Pray for that. Let it not be that we just take the word of God and brush it off, but instead let it, let it implant, let it germinate. Let it stir us. Let, us. let us have a burning fire and say, God, I want to be a part of the Great Commission. I don't want to just point to it and know about it. I want to practice it. Give me someone to decide. And today I would ask you in like manner, pour out to God in prayer. Let's ask Him for that. Let's all stand in this time of worship and seek the Lord. His will be done in all time.